The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're looking at two art historical heavyweights. Later in the podcast we discuss E.H. Gombrich, the Viennese-born art historian and writer of The Story of Art and Art and Illusion, among much else. But first this week, John Ruskin. On the 8th of February, it's the 200th anniversary of the birth of one of the key figures of the Victorian age, a true polymath, art critic, architectural historian, social reformer, naturalist and much, much more. An anniversary exhibition has just opened at Two Temple Place, a late Victorian mansion next to the Thames, kicking off a year of exhibitions and events in the UK and beyond. Robert Hewison curated Ruskin Turner and the Pre-Raphaelites at Tate Britain in 2000, and his most recent of many books on him is Ruskin and his contemporaries. Robert is with me now. Robert, I thought we'd start by just establishing who Ruskin was. He's a complex figure, and I know it's going to be hard to distill what he did, but, but tell us who he was. Well... I suppose the thing to remember about John Ruskin, and he was born in the same year as Queen Victoria, and he is representative of an emerging group of people who become what we now think of as the Victorians. That is to say, uh, these were people who were from quite lowly origins. I mean, Ruskin's grandfather was a bankrupt grocer in Edinburgh. Uh, His father, however, became extremely rich, a millionaire, through the importing of uh, uh, sherry, Domecq sherry. So these were not aristocrats. They were not landowners. And they become what Marx would have called the new bourgeoisie. And of course, on the one hand, they were extremely entrepreneurial. Look at Ruskin's father. At the same time, however, they were deeply religious. And of course, they viewed their evangelical Protestantism and their success in life as being part of the same thing. That is to say that they were becoming rich, wealthy, influential as a result of their faith. The other thing, of course, and this is where Ruskin is individual rather than just a representative of his class, is that Ruskin was deeply affected by the Romantic movement and he himself had certain vast talents which we now see in the works of his books and, of course, his drawings that we are now enjoying in exhibitions and so on. So while Ruskin, on the one hand, is typical of an emergent class, he is also atypical in that he has he's a genius. And that genius was sort of informed partly by the fact that his father was an art collector, right? So how influential was his father on, on Ruskin's learning? Oh, deeply. His father, in fact, had come to London because he had to clear his father's debts. As a result, he did not follow his own career, which was that probably of becoming an Edinburgh lawyer. Instead, he had to go into business. And although he became very rich and he made business friends, he himself poured a lot of his own ambitions into his son, John Ruskin, so that, for instance, the father would encourage the son by paying him a penny a line when he wrote Perch as a little boy. He paid for the very best drawing masters. And, of course, one of their shared interests was collecting art. Now, the art they collected wasn't aristocratic art. It was what we now think of as the picturesque, that is to say, uh, rather pleasant scenes of crumbling cottages and mountains and all those things. And uh, it's it's a very, very English watercolour taste. I mean, they didn't really go in for oils and things like that. But among those artists was one artist in particular, J.M.W. Turner, who, of course, also was a genius and far greater than most of the other watercolorists of his time. And in fact, Ruskin and his father actually employed Turner in the sense that they commissioned work from Turner. So you get this very interesting relationship between a young, very sensitive, pretty neurotic young man deeply admiring this curmudgeonly old artist called Turner, because Turner is, what, 30 years older than Ruskin, 
But by seeing Turner at, literally at work, because Turner would show him a sketch, he says, what do you think of this? Would you like me to work this up into a finished painting? And Ruskin would say yes. And so he would see the imaginative processes. And so when Turner, who is an experimentalist and so on, produces some pretty experimental works in the Royal Academy in 1836 and is roundly attacked by the critics, Ruskin, a very young man, 16, writes a defence and says, no, no, this man's a genius. And the father, John Ruskin's father, sends this defence to Turner. But Turner, being an artist and, you know, not playing the game, says, no, 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 I don't want this published. So it was never published until after uh, Ruskin's death in 1900. But this was the point at which Ruskin, in a sense, found his vocation, which was to use his literary talent to make visual art something of great importance. The, the interesting thing is that obviously the, the connection with Turner grows and grows and you see... And in fact, in the Two Temple Place exhibition, you see very clearly how Turner influenced Ruskin's own art as well as his thinking about art. Well, you see, the the important thing about Ruskin is that he, because he himself was, although he never called himself an artist, because he was an artist, he actually applied a form of criticism which, uh, you know... <laughs> is unusual in the sense that he actually drew and analysed himself. So Ruskin, in a sense, discovers his own capacities as an artist through pastiche, in a sense, by copying Turner's. And there's a whole little collection of, of, of things he said, oh, that's Turner. It isn't Turner, it's Ruskin. Later, of course, the interesting thing is that when Marcel Proust uh, at, at the end, uh, at the end of the century, wants to discover himself as a writer. He actually parodies Ruskin, and so Proust discovers himself in the same way through through pastiche. I'd like to come on to the uh, literary influence of Ruskin in a bit. For the moment, though, I'd like to come stick stick with Turner for a bit because. Uh, Turner is at the heart of one of the sort of colourful stories which has helped inform a kind of popular image of Ruskin. That is, that Ruskin destroyed uh, Turner's erotic drawings. Firstly, what's the truth in that? And how much do you think this has coloured our perception of Ruskin? Well, this is a typical case of the 21st century bringing its mentality to to the nineteenth, uh, the case. What actually happened is that after Turner died in eighteen fifty one, all his works were left in the basement of the National Gallery, gathering dust until Ruskin came down and started sorting them out. And while he was sorting them out, he came across a package of drawings, which some of which are, I suppose, you'd call pornographic, but most of them are sort of life studies and things like that, and. The story got about, partially because Ruskin wrote a letter saying he'd done it, uh, that these drawings were put to the match. But in fact, they weren't, because if you go to the tape, you can see all these drawings. When I did a show in, in 2000 for Ruskin Centenary, we showed these drawings. And I think what actually was happening uh, was that uh, it so happened that the Obscene Publications Act was passed just at this time, and Ruskin wrote a letter to the curator of the collection saying, oh, it's all right, these drawings have been destroyed. In fact, it wasn't Ruskin who, who is alleged to have destroyed them. In fact, it was the uh, curator Wernham. On the other hand, because of Ruskin's, and I suppose we've got to get start talking about his sex life sooner or later, or non-sex life, uh, Ruskin was pretty innocent. And certainly his encounter, I think, with Turner's um, erotic side was a problem for him simply because Turner was such a hero and to discover that this man had, if you like, a dark side. They're not shocking drawings, particularly shocking drawings at all. I mean, we're sitting here in Soho, blimey. <laughs> but this is, but it's interesting, is it? Because in a sense, in writing that letter, he was protecting Turner or protecting Turner's reputation publicly, but he was also it was also an acknowledgement of his own awkwardness about about 
eroticism about sex. Yes, indeed. And, of course, the important thing is that uh, Ruskin and Turner actually fell out uh, about five years before uh, uh, Turner died. And actually... Uh, there is another argument which says that Ruskin, when he went through absolutely everything that Turner had done, he thought rather less of Turner because he saw all the work and he could see, for instance, that, ironically, that Turner's figure drawing is hopeless. Right, yes, exactly. But also, I mean, he would he would also have seen those unfinished works which we now uh, adore and are seen as proto-impressionist and all that side of it. And and, and would that have been too much for the, his his construction of Turner in his mind as a certain kind well, of he, artist. He's, he would have simply thought of them as indeed Turner did, I think, rather, as not quite finished. And, of course, finish, when we start talking Victorian languages and Victorian values, finish the evidence of hard work in a painting, which is why, of course, he loved the Pre-Raphaelites, um, that was an important value. Tell me about the Pre-Raphaelites then, because uh, he was... His writing, in a, in a sense, prompted the movement, did it not? Yes, it did, because uh, in uh, his first book, Modern Painters, uh, which is a, a five-volume work, which stretches right from 1843 to 1860, um, the, in the first volume, he, goes, he tells a uh, young artist to go to nature and just show nature. His reasons for this, of course, is that he thought nature was the work of God, and therefore if you copied nature and you presented nature. And of course, this was taken as, in a sense, an incentive to to a kind of realism as opposed to the conventional forms of art which descended from Raphael, where in fact, uh, putting it very crudely, Painters didn't paint the world. They painted the world according to certain visual conventions which had been grown up and encouraged by the Royal Academy and so on. Anyway, these young artists come along and they paint the world literally as far as they can as they see it. Um, And indeed, it's perhaps not coincidental that photography emerges as an art form about this time. So there is a sense in which you want to make things look real. Although, of course, in that first volume of Modern Painters, Ruskin says, go to nature, neglecting nothing, etc. Then, when you've done that, then you introduce the imaginative elements. And, of course, in the case of the Pre-Raphaelites, that imaginative element was actually brought in through various forms of symbolism and narrative and so on. Did did Ruskin have any sort of sympathy with the sort of Arthurian legend and Shakespeare and all that sort of stuff that we see very commonly in the Pre-Raphaelites? Was he involved in... Did he help generate that kind of language? Well, he he was a... Certainly, he, he was part of the Victorian love of uh, of a medieval world, an imaginary medieval world. The point being is that as Victorian England got nastier and nastier and dirtier and dirtier and darker and darker, then there was an idea that in the Middle Ages, everybody had been living in this lovely sort of agricultural world where everybody knew their place and the peasants were happy and the knights rode around doing noble things. And That kind of medievalism, which is sometimes referred to as critical medievalism, and Thomas Carlyle is really the man who invented it, um, that medievalism was actually a form of criticism of of the present day, which is why the Gothic revival, which Ruskin, of course, is very much associated with, was uh, really regarded as as a criticism of of the way that uh, the contemporary world was going. The dirt and the darkness that you spoke of is at the heart of this great social reforming act that he that is celebrated in the Two Temple Place exhibition in London right now. It's an extraordinary gesture to a community of people and to, and to the city of Sheffield. So tell us, tell us more about it. Well, basically, the first half of Ruskin's life is associated basically with art and art criticism. But he comes to see that you can't have good art without a good society. And he looks around at the society in which he's in and he says we must make good art and good architecture uh, available to everybody. And 
1860, he publishes a series of articles known as Unto This Last, which absolutely takes apart the business ethics of his father, actually, among others, in, in the sense that he says, and the great line is, there is no wealth but life. Now, of course, what we mean by life is, you know, open to many uh, interpretations. But basically, he was saying that the, that the liberal economics of the Manchester School, which is the equivalent to the neoliberal economics that we're suffering under nowadays, uh, this was all wrong and that we needed to recover a, 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 our moral worth through the practice of art and making art available. So he goes, he's invited to Sheffield because he had previously taught in London at the London Working Men's College. So he, he practiced what he preached. Every week he would teach working men how to draw. But he said, I'm not there to make them artists. I'm there to make them better craftsmen. I'm there to make them happier people because they can see and draw, etc. And he creates a connection with Sheffield and he says, right, at this time he himself is trying to reform the world by creating an organisation called the Guild of St George. St George, patron saint of England and also uh, in, in, in the mythography a man who kills the dragon and of course for Ruskin that's the dragon of industrialism and makes the earth fruitful again. So the idea of the Guild of St. George was on the one hand was to teach and, and, and educate and on the other was to actually make the earth fruitful and harmonious again. Uh, this would be done by, for instance, banning steam engines and things like that. Anyway, part of that educational process is, of course, is to create a museum. But this isn't a museum like, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Uffizi or something, which is a sort of tribute to power. This is a museum full of really quite small, intricate things, some of them absolutely exquisite, some of them pretty ordinary and banal, um, which will show the working people of Sheffield what is possible. And the great thing about the Two Temple Place exhibition is that somehow or other it actually manages to do that. Um, I mean, you go around the, the, the first floor of the exhibition and you, you are introduced to the famous themes of Ruskin's life. Turner, architecture, the importance of Venice, the importance of studying geology and botany. And then you go upstairs and you walk into a room and the first thing you see is a, uh, a casket of what look like jewels. Actually, they're geological samples. They are absolutely beautiful because... Ruskin, if he says go to nature, he also means be a scientist, be an observer, see and admire these minerals. So, you know, Two Temple Place, actually, in a, in a funny way, um, particularly because it's it's not doesn't look like a modern exhibition, you know, or a white cube and, and everything hung on the line and all that, does actually manage to convey this completely uh, various mind that Ruskin had. And what I love about it as well is in that particular sort of, at the heart of the exhibition is a room which is evocative of what that music, very small museum would have been like, crammed with stuff, with no interpretation, no visible interpretation of how things relate. And things are not organised or categorised in a way that other kinds of museums were. But there's a wonderful sense of, and you really feel it, that desire that Ruskin had to make people look and continue looking, and for that to instruct them. It, it seems to me to be a really successful part of the exhibition, though. Yes. I mean, the, the other point about Ruskin, I mean, I've alluded it before, is, of course, is the emphasis on actually see, simply on seeing and the practice of drawing. Because one of the ways in which we can access Ruskin in a way we can't access other Victorians like Carlyle and so on, is we can simply go and look at one of his drawings, which is an immediate physical relationship with this man, unmediated even by words. That's right. And and, and he was... He was uh, th those drawings of leaves and rocks and, and birds and the, and the watercolours are just 
utterly exquisite, aren't they? I mean, it's one of the things that they are jewel-like in themselves. They are, but of course they are also, in a sense, scientific, in the sense that what he wanted us to do was to look at the real world and understand it and be able to manifest it. At the same time, of course, he creates a huge mythography around that, and his later writings on botany and uh, geology are... um, well, they're they're quite a hard read, but they are actually wonderful because they talk about uh, uh, the queen of the air, Athena, and they talk about the spirit of nature. And, of course, the point about this is that this is the beginning of a kind of ecological sensibility. I mean, the Victorians are going around destroying the lakes, destroying the mountains, ripping up the earth, all that, creating railway stations. And Ruskin is saying, hang on, we're losing something here. And really, you know, uh, he wasn't uh, an ecologist, in uh, again, in terms of 21st century sensibility, but he's certainly the father of the environmental movement. And, of course, in 1881, he produces this wonderful lecture, <laughs> again, not an easy read, called The Storm Cloud of the 19th Century, which is the perfect phrase because that storm cloud bears all the dust and filth and poison and pollution which was spreading all over England at that time. By this time, he is living in the Lake District, beautiful part of the world, but just over the hill, or the mountains, is of course is the are the shipyards of Barrow. So he sits in his study and he paints the most exquisite watercolors of the sky and so on. But that sky is polluted. The influence on other writers and thinkers is really quite something in in his own time. So can you give us a guide to some of the leading people who followed him? Because it's quite an extraordinary roll call, actually. Well, yes, I suppose um, we immediately think of William Morris and the whole arts and crafts movement, which actually goes back to Ruskin because uh, when William Morris was at Oxford in 1851, he reads Ruskin's uh, chapter called The Nature of Gothic, which asks... Was the basically was the workman happy when he did this? And he says, usually no, because classical art, classical architecture, machine architecture, and so on, symmetry and all that is death and slavery. Whereas, even in the tiniest way, if the artist, if the, if the artisan, not the artist, the artisan is allowed to find a form of self-expression, a form of self-realization in the work then this is good art. So you've got William Morris. Uh, obviously, he's influ- very influential in, in the Gothic revival of uh, uh, people like Street and so on. Um, he has a rival in Pugin, and he dislikes Pugin because Pugin was a Roman Catholic. And, of course, at that stage, Ruskin, I'm afraid to say, was seriously anti-Catholic. Um, But Pugin, as it were, dies in the 1850s. And so the world is clear for Ruskin then to promote the the Gothic revival. And then basically his ideas percolate through. And so by the end of the 19th century, what he's done is there's a rising class. Again, I'm sorry to sound like an old-fashioned Marxist, but there is a new class arriving, which is the self-educated artisan, the man... And, and woman who wishes to, you know, recover from the exploitation that has been in, in, imposed. And because they are English and because they've all been brought up on the Bible, Ruskin's use of the Bible, which is the basis of, of all his language, gives them a language in which they can then go on to oppose industrialism and so on. So that by the time the the uh, first members of the Labour Party are elected to uh, the House of Commons in 1906, um, people say, well, what were your influences? And they all say, Ruskin. Although Ruskin himself, um, let's go back to the beginning, like his father, he says the opening lines of his autobiography are, I am, like my father before me, a violent Tory of the old school. And, of course, there is something retrogressive, in a sense, about Ruskin's imaginary past society. And he never voted. He was an authoritarian. Um, But I've spent the last 
50 years absolutely loving this man <laughs> and 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 another of the figures that 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 builds on ruskin's work is is mahatma gandhi who translated unto this last gave it a new title but translated a ruskin text yes uh, gandhi was in uh, in it's 1906 he's working as a solicitor in south africa he takes a long train journey he reads under this last and this is a conversion for him just as Tolstoy, but round about the same time, is saying, uh, you know, is saying that actually Ruskin has, really understands what it is that we need to do to reform society. And one of the most beautiful things I discovered recently doing some research is that Morris, William Morris, produced a beautiful arts and craft edition, limited edition of uh, the nature of Gothic. It's the most it's a masterpiece of the arts and crafts movement in terms of typography. There were only 50 copies. They were very expensive. But there is one copy in Tolstoy's library. Uh-huh. What about his influence in the United States, for instance? Well, it, it, it was profound. I mean, the Americans were, were <laughs> pirating his books from the beginning for a start. But actually, no, his ideas percolated through very strongly both in terms of uh, an influence on architecture, um, people like Sturgis and so on. Uh, I mean, they formed a society called the Society for the Advancement of Truth in Art, and they had a magazine called The True Path. And all that was to do with promoting Ruskin's ideas. Then there is the fact that Ruskin had a a close American friend, Charles Eliot Norton, who was professor of art at Harvard, and uh, Norton set up um, a drawing school or drawing course very similar to the Ruskin School of Drawing, which Ruskin himself had set up in Oxford in the 1870s with his own money. So there's all that. And then, of course, there are, uh, there are at least two places, three places I know of in, in America called Ruskin. Ruskin, Florida was was actually originally set up as a sort of Guild of St. George-type community. That's still there. There's a Ruskin, Nebraska, which I think was simply a railway halt. And there was another Ruskin. And the point about all these places is that that these were people who were following uh, his influences and trying to produce the kind of virtuous and art that and way of life that Ruskin wanted. There was one of one member of the, the Hudson River School who actually had been taught by Ruskin at the London Working Men's College. And last but not least, there is the Ruskin Art Club of Los Angeles, founded in 1888, and I'm delighted to say I'm going to be addressing them in March this year. So there is an absolute direct continuity between well, I like to think of it Ruskin and me. <laughs> Lastly, Ruskin's legacy, Ruskin today, he disappeared for much of the 20th century when modernism arrived. But where is Rus- where, do, where can we situate Ruskin in, in the 21st century, do you think? Well, I think that what we're doing is refinding Ruskin. We're obviously not... <laughs> uh, 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 Imitating his 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 uh, passion for innocence in the form of young girls and things like that, but what we are doing is going back to his basic principles in education, the necessity for education, the necessity for seeing, and also we are looking at the way uh, men and women relate to each other and relate to the natural world in which we all live. Therefore, what he said back in 1860 is still just as true today. And this is what we are reviving, which is there is no wealth but life. That's a great note to end on, Robert. Thank you so much. And thank you, Ben. Thank you very much. Robert Hewson's Ruskin and His Contemporaries is published by Pallas Athene. John Ruskin, The Power of Seeing, is at Two Temple Place in London until the 22nd of April and then travels to the Millennium Gallery in Sheffield in May. Among the many other shows and events this year is Turner, Ruskin and the Storm Cloud of the Modern World, which begins at the York Art Gallery in March and travels in July to Abbott Hall in Kendall. Outside the UK, at the Yale Centre for British Art in New Haven, Connecticut, the exhibition John Ruskin at 200 opens in September. 
You can see a comprehensive list of the anniversary events at the Ruskin Today website. That's ruskin2-day.org. We'll be back talking about E.H. Gombrich after this. No country has been better at romanticising its tumultuous past than America, writes Rich Hall, the performer and documentary maker in the current edition of Bonham's magazine. And its most distinctive image, he continues, is the cowboy. He inhabits a period frozen in amber between the traders and trappers of the 19th century and the hordes of advancing settlers who parcelled out the land and fenced it in. One of the greatest collections of Californian and Western art that depicts this era was put together by the businessman and philanthropist Lloyd Brinkman. This astonishing group of works will be offered at Bonhams Los Angeles and online on February 8th. Artists such as Albert Bierstadt painted the magnificent landscapes, glassy lakes, cascading waterfalls, thunderous skies and vast distances, while Ernest Hennings captured the self-reliance of the pioneers, forging a future for themselves. In the words of Rich Hall, the West is an old myth that always represents a new start. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, Ernst H. Gombrich is probably best known for The Story of Art, his book which was first published in 1950 and remains in print to this day. It's still the grounding for many art history students and is still read to by general readers. At the end of last year, an event was held at the Austrian Cultural Forum in London to celebrate the publication of a new book, Art and the Mind, E.H. Gombrich. It's edited by Sibylla Moser Ernst, a former student of Gombrich's and now professor at the University of Innsbruck. We invited Sibylla to come to the studio to discuss Gombrich along with Paul Taylor, the author of Meditations on a Heritage, Papers on the Work and Legacy of Sir Ernst Gombrich, and also curator of the photographic collection at the Warburg Institute, where Gombrich was based for much of his time in England. I began by asking them what they considered to be the pillars of Gombrich's thought. Though he himself couldn't really make an image, he was always very eager to meet, to meet artists, to meet painters, to meet draftsmen to learn about the creative process. So he always went back to to the object itself, to the process itself. In contrast to Central European art history, they collect footnotes, you know? And they look for the latest fashion, yeah? To be in the steps of the career. And Gombrich always made us look to to what is the important and the interesting. And another thing, he did not get tired to honor his uh, teacher, Julius von Schlosser. And you always ask the question, Gombrich was much brighter. Schlosser was the archivist. But why did he remember that? He wanted us to point back to the, to the sources, to read, to read the, deck, the texts, not only to read them, to read them five times, six times, yes, to find out the rhetoric, you know? Mm-hmm. Paul, what would you say about, about well, these, him as I a pillar? Think, uh, one of the things about Gombrich is that uh, in the philosophy of images these days, if you go and talk to philosophers of images, they talk about the pre-Gombrich era and the post-Gombrich era. As far as they're concerned, Gombrich founded the modern philosophy of the image. I mean, a lot of people who are big figures in the philosophy of images, like Nelson Goodman or Richard Volheim or Kendall Walton, all say that they only got into the subject because of Gombrich, that it was Gombrich who inspired them to write about it. And also, even today, people still are quoting Gombrich. I should say even today, but the the notion that Gombrich has been rediscovered is, is really not right. I mean, if you look back at how he's been cited over the past 20 or 30 years, he's just been on a constant upward surge, really. Uh, he's an enormous figure in our history. I mean, he really is. And he's, he's never gone through a period of not being an enormous figure. And what's particularly impressive about him, I think, is that not only is he um, someone who uh, is cited widely within our history, he's also cited widely in psychology and the history of literature and in philosophy. He's just an enormous figure. Uh, and, uh, and there's never not been. I mean, a number of people have, you know, said, oh, Gombrich, you know, we're not into Gombrich anymore. And, and that's, you know, fine. People are going to disagree with any person. But, it, you know, you might disagree with Gombrich, but he's always been there. He's always been, you know, inspiring people. And uh, one of the ways he's been inspiring people, of course, he was such a good writer. He was such a great, entertaining writer. He could not be boring. Uh, and that is one of the most amazing gifts, really, of an art historian in the past century. I suppose his most widely read book is is one that, 
art historians may regard as, as significant, but not the not the sort of essential tome for for lots of them, which is the story of art, which is obviously a a very approachable way to familiarise yourself, particularly with Western art history. But but um, I mean, is the story of art something that um, in a way interrupts our assessment of him? <laughs> um, well, I, I know that when he first wrote it, he got a bit of stick within the Warburg Institute because the director at that time, Fritz Saxel, thought he shouldn't be you know, engaging with frivolities like this. Um, but then again, it made him famous and uh, he got him invitations you know, to uh, America and so on, which were very useful to him as he was then working on his, um, his, his work you know, in, in, the, in the years that, uh, that followed, building up to Art and Illusion, his, his, his great masterpiece um, in 1960. Uh, and so for him, it was very useful. And also it should be said that there aren't very many art historians at least in the UK uh, who um, haven't read the story of art or bits of it at some time or another and many of us it was the first book we ever read about uh, about art and that was when we first heard of him yeah my experience I, I studied art history at the start of the 90s at Middlesex University which was very much connected to what, what's called the new art history and there was a lot of Marxist theory there was a lot mm-hmm. of feminist theory and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff and I think mm-hmm. In certain quarters there, oh, um, yeah, yeah. Gombrich was not, uh, he was not persona non grata, but he was certainly not, not somebody that we were recommended to talk to, mm-hmm. to, to, to mm-hmm. respond to. And also, to a certain extent, um, I can remember, you know, we were, Story of Art was on our first reading list and people were said, when we were told, you know, don't regard it as... Uh, a kind of an authoritative history, but tell us what you think about it, sort of thing. So it's an interesting. Well, I think Gombrich would have thoroughly approved of that. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, so this is it. He, he was a, he was somebody who encouraged a plural debate he about. He loved to about say within looking. the Warburg Institute. He loved to say we are not a mutual admiration society. Right. <laughs> and I mean, he thoroughly, you know, encouraged people to to disagree. So, so tell me, let's let's delve a little deeper and 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 talk about art and illusion because this is, in a way, regarded by many people as his sort of key text. I'm sure you might disagree. I'm interested. Be interested to hear what you think. But but um, tell me about what he was arguing in art and illusion and what um, and how, in a way, how that's affected the way that we see. The History of Images. It's a very complex book and there's a huge amount of rich debate of all sorts of topics in it. But uh, the basic idea is to try to work out why it took such a long time, you know, 250 years from Giotto to Raphael for people to conquer um, illusionistic imagery. I mean, why can't you just make an illusionistic image? And he was interested in the psychology about this. You know, I mean, you know, uh, it's actually impossible to make an, a, you know, a realistic image just like that. Uh, and there are various reasons to do uh, with um, psychological constancies, that there are certain ways we have of perceiving the world which we can't overcome very easily. Uh, our psychological system for dealing with images uh, are you know, um, exceptionally complex, but also they stand in the way of someone who is trying to construct an image which actually corresponds in a mathematical way to reality. So one of the things that was so important about the book was the way that he brought psychology uh, into um, art history. And in fact, there's one thing where he hasn't really been followed up very much. You know? People I don't think really... I mean, some have, like Raphael Rosenberg in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Vienna. But by and large, people, people have been uh, a bit slow to, to pick up on his introduction of, of psychology as a way of thinking about art. But what he was trying to do was to explain the history of art and why the history of art progressed in the way it did in terms of psychology and the difficulties of illusionism. And in a way, this was, I think, and I'd be interested to hear what Sibylla has to say about this, but I think this is at least in part because he was trying to react against various kinds of art history of the past which had used explanatory modes like uh, the spirit of the people or the spirit of the age. He hated these ideas. You know, he hated them because, of course, he associated them with Nazism. Uh, and, and, you know, leaving, um, you know, Austria, coming to London. I mean, I, I, he wasn't a very political man, at least not in his art history, but I think you can make a case, or I think I would make a case, that much of his later art history is actually a response to or, or, or an attempt to, to ensure that art history wouldn't fall into the sorts of totalitarian reasoning um, that he felt um, had been, you know, um, active in... Uh, you know, in in Austria, the Austria that he'd grown up in. So, in in a sense, his work is very political. It seems to me. But I'm I'm really fascinated by this idea of him regarding artists as the scientists of vision. Can you explain more 
what you mean by that? Well, I think that he, he, whenever he thought of an art scientist, he was uh, often, I mean, the person he would often show would be Constable, for example. I mean, Constable, you know, is the, the, the beginning of Art and Illusion, Wivenhoe Park. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he, he shows you one of Constable's images and he is interested in the ways that artists manage to overcome um, the psychological impediments we have for seeing the world correctly and manage to create an image of the world which is, in fact, mathematically correct. I mean, this is one of the strange things about Gombrich, because on the one hand, he seems to be giving you a very relativistic view of what it is to see, but then there's another chapter where he defends perspective rigorously, um, and he says perspective is actually mathematically correct. I think uh, Gombrich was actually very gifted mathematically. <laughs> he really he understood was. geometry, you know. He was. Um, and, and he knew that actually, you know, what was happening within a, you know, a, a, a perspectival image was corresponding to the way that light moves in reality. Uh, and he was always completely clear about that. Uh, and he often has got himself into trouble with people who, who haven't quite understood the, the, the subtlety of what he was saying there, I mm -hmm. think. I mean, the whole mm -hmm. book seems to be uh, a self-contradiction, but it's not. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's just you know, it's very deep thinking, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, he's also very... He really privileges the role of the viewer. Uh, so the art isn't just what happens to you as you look at it art is something that you are an active participant in as a viewer absolutely yeah. can you explain more about that well um he does this at sort of different levels and and, and one level i've been thinking about just recently um because i've been reading um about uh, i've been reading gombrich and i've been thinking about particular issues in iconography uh, and he's very interesting when he talks about the meanings of images and he basically says that any image is completely ambiguous and only the beholder basically can affix the meaning um to it you know yes beautiful example of a, a plaque from Pompeii which says Carve Carnem, beware the dog, and then it's got a picture of a very ferocious Alsatian-like dog, right? And he says, well, you know, you might think that that's a picture of, um, you know, beware the dog, but it's all depending on the context, you know? Uh, it could be a picture of any number of other things. I mean, it could be, uh, you know, uh, a picture of a, uh, an image of a dog, it could be, and so on. I mean, he gives you about five or six different readings you could give to this one thing if you didn't have the text there to tell you how to read it. Um, but he's always aware that, you know, the, the, the viewer is the person who decides in the end what the picture is doing. Uh, and it's, it's only the viewer who can actually read what is what is there. There are other ways, too, in which he, he talks about the beholder's share, but uh, uh, I don't have them immediately in yes, my mind. Yes, I, but... I would agree with the ambiguity of the image uh, that he was searching for the context, but the context is like uh, when the viewer sees nature, he also has to decide uh, how he is uh, fighting his path through nature, you know. He has to evaluate not to fall into a hole. So it's uh, the same in scholarship, I think. And uh, Gombrich was always uh, warning that uh, some of these theories, they are perfect constructions. They are uh, perfectly uh, uh, supporting a logic, but that logic may be is directing to a hole. For, for some scholars uh, who are in their own logic, almost caught in a certain logic, in a theory, he was not... Uh, mm, he was very demanding because they just could not understand him as long as they were not prepared to open up and to ask another question. He, he was always very interested in particulars, wasn't he? I mean, the, the, the way he tells a, uh, any kind of... Whenever he's trying to explain a theory to you, he always does it with examples. Um, and he, he doesn't do it in terms of long, you know, spiels of abstract sentences explaining his theory. He says, well, here's an example. For, I look at this, you know. And that was just how he thought. I think he thought in terms of concrete examples all the time. And that's how he saw the world, too. He saw the world as being full of concrete objects and people, individuals. Um, and, and that was how he understood it. Gombrich was always con uh, interested in how painters developed new modes, new styles to produce uh, this uh, this new world of a painting, that painting is a is another world. It's it's not so much when he talks about uh, making comes before matching. It's not so much an illusion in the popular sense of understanding. It's more making an own world that recalls an experience we have, maybe. 
that's that's true. But then, but then he imagines it sort of, you know, um, slowly the, the the making is sort of, you know, changed little bit by little bit until it comes closer and closer to matching something it never mm. actually reaches. I think. I mean, it's uh, but it, uh, it it's it's it's. it's a pr- I mean, obviously, Constable is closer to reality than you know um, a, a Bangwa funerary relief. You know, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, in that sense, he's he's quite clear that there there, there is a um, a direction, but. In the end, it is impossible to produce a perfect illusion think, of reality, and he's, he's aware of that. We are still loaded with the concept of naturalism, which Gombrich was not at all just pursuing because he loved, for example, Paul Clay. And how did Paul Clay match naturalism? Never, never ever. But he was making and matching until we have the illusion of an own world, you know? Yeah, so he allowed... he. he I suppose one of the things is that often theories are so doctrinaire that they don't allow artists uh, the freedom to be themselves within 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 a series of values. But it seems to me that in his conversations with artists and in wanting to seek the 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 view of the artist, exactly, he, he, he there's a there's an element of trust there about the artist's own vision. Yes, yes, exactly. And I understood when I met, for example, Zevola. He is the um, he is the director of the um, Archivio di Banca di Napoli, which is the oldest bank and holds in the archives even the old documents of Caravaggio, for example. You know, Zevola, he himself is drawing doodles, caricatures like I do. And when we met each other, we discovered that Gombrich used the both of us because we knew about drawing, you know, and he asked questions. He later on uh, was pursuing for his theories, you know. He oh, he, he wrote even a, a chapter on doodles, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm-hmm. No, so, very and by, and by that yeah. I learned a lot, yes, because uh, I, I, I had the privilege to spend, uh, yeah, almost 20 years with him. So this was as a pupil and then as a friend to discuss and to evaluate, mm. you know, yeah. and also to observe how art history advanced. And I understood more and more what he meant by the saying, not to feed the academic industry, but to advance the subject. Yeah. Right. And very much what we we are doing in the in humanities is just feed the industry, the academic industry for careers, for certain careers. And uh, that's what he never wanted to pursue. Let's talk about the Warburg Institute then, because it, <laughs> okay. because it was obviously so crucial in his development of his theories and his, and his development of his work. And he was its director. So. I'm not sure that everybody listening will know what the what the Warburg Institute is. Can you give us a, a very <laughs> potted history, but also what it meant to Gombrich? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, uh, the, the Warburg Institute goes back to the personal collecting habits of A.B. Warburg, who was a um, member of the rich Warburg banking family, Warburg banking family in Hamburg. Uh, and he wasn't really very interested in banking. He was very interested in art history. Uh, and so he bought himself out of the bank by getting his brothers to buy him every single book uh, he wanted, and he gave them the bank. Uh, and they obviously thought that they had a good deal, but 40,000 rare books later, it wasn't clear that he didn't get his money's worth. You know? <laughs> um, but anyway, um, Warburg uh, set up uh, this... Um, so he, he began to share his books and his photographs with uh, the wider world, uh, and turn, it turned into an institute uh, with the help of his assistant, Fritz Saxel. Uh, Warburg died in 1929, uh, and the institute kept on sort of running under Saxel's directorship. Uh, in 1933, uh, almost all the members of staff were considered Jewish by the Nazis, and so they had to leave, uh, and they um, came to London. Uh, Gombrich, meanwhile, was in uh, Vienna, uh, and uh, Gombrich began to realise that he had to leave too. So in 1936, he left, and he was offered a job at the Warburg Institute uh, of uh, working on A.B. Warburg's uh, legacy, on, on the material he had left, uh, and on uh, he was basically asked to write a biography of A.B. Warburg, which eventually he did. Of course, in 1970, he published a, uh, a biography of Warburg. 
Uh, now, uh, you know, you might think that A.B. Warburg, who is a, you know, a famous character in art history these days, must have influenced um, Gombrich um, heavily. But actually, the relationship between the two, although they never met, the relationship between the two was a little bit less clear than that. Uh, when I got to the, the Warburg in the 1990s, Gombrich used to give a lecture at the beginning of every year uh, about Warburg, and it was almost always hostile. <laughs> uh, well, it was always hostile, in fact. Oh, yes. No, no, I mean, he, he, he would accuse him of Hegelianism, which in Gombrich's um, you know, lexicon was a very, very bad word, you know. <laughs> yes. um, and uh, he basically said that he was confused, uh, and he wasn't... I mean, he obviously really was not sympathetic with his, with his work at all. Even, I mean, it's amazing that he managed to write that biography, which is a pretty even handed biography, in fact. Um, I mean, if you know what Gombrich thought of Warburg, then you can sense every now and again that he's not entirely happy. But for the most part, it's, it's, a, it's a you know good, sensible biography. But no, um, he, he didn't approve of Warburg at all. Now, at the Warburg at the time, it was um, uh, you know being run by Fritz Saxel and also by his deputy, Gertrude Bing. Uh, and Bing and Saxel were huge admirers of Warburg. Uh, and they um, very much wanted the, um, the the Warburg to be an attempt to uh, continue with Warburg's work. And actually, Gombrich was not in sympathy with this. And I remember hearing about a, a very sticky staff meeting in which uh, Gertrude Bing said, so what are we going to do to advance um, Warburg's legacy? And he said, look, as far as I'm concerned, what we need to do is to advance Kurtz's legacy and Gombrich's legacy and Yates's legacy, right? We need to uh, you know, advance our legacies. We're not here to advance A.B. Warburg's legacy. Um, and so, you know, was he heavily influenced by the Warburg Institute? Well, I'm not entirely convinced he was, actually. <laughs> not yeah. really. Yeah. I mean, his yeah. number one friend at the Warburg uh, mm -hmm. was Otto Kurtz, um, mm -hmm. um, the librarian, but he'd known Kurtz in Vienna. Uh, so I I'm not even sure that he was much influenced by English intellectual life, with the exception of Richard Gregory. I mean, that, that, that was somebody who we really, you know, um, learned from. And Gregory and, and Gombrich were often sort of, you know, uh, working together. Uh, and he cites Gregory repeatedly in uh, Art and Illusion. He clearly learned from him. It feels like we've just touched the tip of the iceberg, but we must conclude here. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very honoured. Thank you. Art and the Mind by Sibylla Moser Ernst is published by Vanden Herk and Ruprecht. And the story of art and the essential Gombrich are published by Fiden, still available. Art and Illusion is not currently in print, but you can, of course, find it widely online and in libraries. And that's all for this week. Please do subscribe if you haven't already, and you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. And as ever, you can find the art newspaper on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You can subscribe to the monthly print edition of the art newspaper at subscribe.theartnewspaper.com. The producers of the Art Newspaper Podcast are Julia Machowska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Robert, Sibylla and Paul, and thank you for listening. Next week we'll be talking to two British artists, Tracy Emin and George Shaw. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. <laughs>